We all loved playing Oregon Trail growing up, right? Loading up the family, traveling the country, hunting for food. It was hours and hours of fun. Even the dysentery didn't seem so bad. The real-life Oregon Trail, however, not so pleasant. Today, we'll follow the journey of the Donner family and their pilgrimage out west. We'll detail the horrors they encountered, including untraveled terrain, inclement weather, and eventually, cannibalism. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you hated when mom made you eat your vegetables every night, stick around. Let's find out what happens when mom makes you eat Uncle Jacob. This is Necronomapod. The unfortunate side is that the cannibalism gets, gets the press or gets the, uh, the print as far as uh, books about the Donner Party. And the real heart of the story seems to get lost. Whether or not uh, cannibalism actually did take place uh, uh, during the Donner tragedy, I'm not even willing to speculate about. Uh, certainly written accounts would suggest that uh, it probably did. Uh, archaeologically, given the fragmented nature of the bone that we have found and, and the disintegrated state of most of the remains, uh, we probably wouldn't, would not be able to add any additional information to that. All right, so I uh, hope all of you listeners are ready to go to school today because we have quite the history story for all of you. I know I'm quite excited. Um, yeah, this is a pretty wild story we're going to get into. You picked this one. I did randomly just looking through the giant list that you uh, that we have uh, put together over the years and you sent to us. And just scrolling through, ran, happened to see Donner Party, and I was like, what the hell is this all about? Looked it up, saw what the story was, and was like, fuck yeah, we got to cover that one. To make you hungry? Thinking about it? it I, man, I am craving beef jerky just exactly. reading the story. <laughs> I might snack on some. If you hear me just gnawing later, that's what it is. Yeah. So anyways, we got quite a story to get into tonight, so let's uh, cut to the uh, chase and get into it. What do we got, Ian? During the 1840s, the United States saw a dramatic increase in settlers who left their homes in the east to resettle in the Oregon Territory or California, which at the time were only accessible by very long sea travel or a difficult land journey across the American frontier. Some, such as Patrick Breen, saw California as a place where they would be able to live free in a fully Catholic culture. Others were attracted to the West's economic opportunities or inspired by the idea of manifest destiny, the belief that the land between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans belong to European Americans and that they should settle it. I mean, no one else was living there, right? So why shouldn't those white devils get all that land to themselves? <laughs> it's not like it was occupied by anybody, right? <laughs> Sounds fair to me. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Amazing we still teach that manifest destiny shit, you know, as anything other than a fucking genocide. Right. I also think it's wild that... Um, Settlers had to leave their home for very long sea travel or a difficult land journey. Do you realize how long that sea travel is? This was, I mean, we're talking before the Panama Canal to get to the West Coast. How do you even go down to Mississippi, like to the Gulf and then all the way up around South America? I think, I think so. Jeez. That or if you're very East, just the Atlantic all the way around South America. Yeah, no cut through. Sounds fun. Plus this yeah. Catholic, fully Catholic. That sounds awesome. <laughs> most wagon trains followed the Oregon Trail route 
From a starting point in Independence, Missouri, to the continental divide of the Americas, traveling about 15 miles a day on a journey that usually took between four and six months. <sighs> the trail generally followed rivers to South Pass, a mountain pass in present-day Wyoming, which was relatively easy for wagons to navigate. From there, pioneers had a choice of routes to their destinations. Mike, uh, most famous son from Independence, Missouri. Hmm. I don't know where you're going with this one. Who? Harry Truman. Oh, okay. I, I, that was not the angle I thought you were oh. going with that question. Okay. Sorry to disappoint Harry, you. Harry S. Truman. That's it. Lansford. Interlude over. That's all I got. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Lansford Hastings, an early migrant from Ohio to the West, went to California in 1842 and saw the promise of the underdeveloped country. To encourage settlers, he published the Immigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. As an alternative to the Oregon Trail's standard route through Idaho's Snake River Plain, he proposed a more direct route, which actually increased the trip's mileage to California across the Great Basin, which would take travelers through the Wasatch Range and across the Great Salt Lake Desert. Have you guys ever been in the Salt Lake Desert? No, I've not. I was there once. In the, it was a bright sunny day. It is absolutely blinding to look at. With that white powder and like, stuff, yeah. Yeah, like we walked over it. Like, it, like your eyes instantly watering. Even with sunglasses on, it was difficult. Mm. It's just crazy. What were you doing there? We were. It was like a cross country trip we took when mm. I was younger as a family. Just kind of stopped there to see it. That's where they have the uh, the Bonneville Speed Flats, where all the yeah, right, the land speed records are made. Four days later, when I stopped seeing red and my eyes stopped bleeding, it was it was a, it was a great, lovely rest of the trip. You're not supposed to stare into the sun with no glasses, pal. It wasn't the sun; it was the ground. <laughs> Who do you think I am, the president of the United States, looking at an eclipse? <laughs> Hastings had not traveled any part of his proposed shortcut until early 1846 on a trip from California to Fort Bridger. The fort was a supply station run by Jim Bridger and his partner, Louis Vasquez, in Black's Fork, Wyoming. Hastings stayed at the fort to persuade travelers to turn south onto his route. As of 1846, Hastings was the second of two men documented to have crossed the southern part of the Great Salt Lake Desert, but neither had been accompanied by wagons. So in short, Hastings was not being honest with people that he was telling to take his route, and he was just doing this for monetary gain. Wow. It's the root of all evil, am I right? Yeah, I feel like this country was kind of built on these kind of guys back in the day oh, that were... yeah, without a doubt. ...with all this money stuff. Sure. I'll sell your mother for a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> Arguably the most difficult part of the journey to California was the last uh, 100 miles across the Sierra Nevada, this mountain range has 500 distinct peaks over 12,000 feet high, which because of their height and proximity to the Pacific Ocean, receive more snow than most other ranges in North America. The eastern side of the range is also extremely steep. After leaving Missouri to cross the vast wilderness to Oregon or California, timing was crucial to ensure that wagon trains would not be bogged down by mud created by spring rains or by massive snow drifts in the mountains from September onward. Traveling during the right time 
of year was also critical to ensure that horses and oxen had enough spring grass to eat. It's a pretty short time frame here they had to be in, you know, late spring to avoid the mud with the rains and everything, but got to cross those by winter, so not much room right. for and error Right, and what did we there. say? This was, this was a, a six-month journey, so yeah. like yeah. you have like an exact window you need to get into. In the spring of 1846, almost 500 wagons headed west from Independence. At the rear of the train, a group of nine wagons contained 32 members of the Reed and Donner families and their employees left on May 12th. George Donner, born in North Carolina, had gradually moved west to Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois, and then spent one year in Texas. In early 1846, he was about 60 years old and living near Springfield, Illinois. With him was his 44-year-old wife, Tamsin, and their three daughters. Their three daughters and George's daughters from a previous marriage. Uh, George's younger brother, Jacob, also joined with his wife, Elizabeth, and their five children. Also traveling with the Donner brothers were seven Teamsters. James F. Reed, a 45-year-old native of Ireland, settled in Illinois in 1831. He was accompanied by his wife, Margaret, and their five kids. Margaret's mother, who was 70 years old, also came with them, and she was in advanced stages of consumption, which is tuberculosis. The Reeds hired three men to drive their ox teams, and they also had a handyman, and the handyman's sister they brought as the family's cook. So these guys are pretty well off and are, you know have some means if they're bringing their help with them. And we'll get into it later, the stuff that they brought with them, like being all... Uh, kind of bougie about their wagons and stuff yeah. that that backfired real quick on them <laughs> mm, i wonder why <laughs> you know interesting fact i saw about this james reed is that he was uh friends with abraham lincoln and lincoln uh, had considered coming with these guys on this trip really yeah how about that wouldn't that have changed the course of american history might have might have also abraham this, lincoln oh. favorite favorite sport professional wrestling there you go he was a badass lincoln Mm-hmm. And also this uh, Donner fellow is like 60 years old. Can you imagine doing all this when you're 60? Like a six-month fucking wagon trip through the mountains? Especially because in, in this day and age, 60 was like, what, 100 in today's day and age? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, this guy is on borrowed time as it is. Holy <laughs> shit. Within a week of leaving Independence, the Reeds and Donners joined a group of 50 wagons led by William H. Russell. By June 16th, the group had traveled 450 miles with 200 miles to go before Fort Laramie, Wyoming. They had been delayed by rain and a rising river, but Tamsin Donner wrote to a friend in Springfield saying, quote, Indeed, if I do not experience something far worse than I have yet done, I shall say the trouble is all in getting started. One of Reed's daughters recalled years later that during the first part of the trip, she was, quote, perfectly happy. Yeah, but... she's in for a surprise otherwise we wouldn't be covering this topic (laughs) (laughs) several other families joined the wagon train along the way lavinia murphy aged 37 was a widow from tennessee and she was the head of a family of 13 william h eddy a carriage maker from illinois brought his wife eleanor and two of their children the Breen family consisted of Patrick Breen, a farmer from Iowa, his wife Margaret, and seven children. And German immigrant Louis Kesselberg joined along with his wife Elizabeth Philippine 
and their daughter, and then they had a son that was born on the trail. That had to be unpleasant for Elizabeth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Spurring you know, a and, kid out in the back of a wagon. <laughs> well, maybe the oh. all the bumps in the rocky road like helped the kid come out. You know what I mean? Like, just kind of bumped it right out of her. Just saying. <laughs> I was reading about this stuff, like just like the general traveling, like the Oregon Trail and stuff. If women got pregnant, that was like not great. That was considered like almost a death sentence in in some cases. <laughs> so they would I was reading that women would just start like doing a ton of exercise like running alongside the wagons and stuff to like have abortions. Mm. Can't just keep it in your fucking pants, can you? <laughs> right? God damn. It's horny men and women out there. Who doesn't want to fuck on the Oregon Trail, bro? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. Everyone like, smells well. so good, I'm sure. It's probably <laughs> yeah, right. so, so romantic. <laughs> and after all that work all day, you know, you have so much energy at night when you're supposed to be sleeping and getting rest. Oh, can you imagine? Jesus. No, I can't. <laughs> Sounds awful and putrid and nasty. Two young single men named Spritzer and Reinhardt traveled with another German couple, the Wolfingers. And they had also hired a driver. And then there was an older man named Hardcoop who rode with them. Lou Colloran, a young man who seemed to get sicker with consumption every day, was passed on from family to family as no one could, you know, they didn't have the time or resources to take care of him. So they brought a sick guy with TB and they're like, hey, you played hot potato with him. Probably till he died, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, and no, then they no. have this really old guy named Hard, named Hardcoop. You want? I wonder if they put all the sickies in like the one wagon and just pull them at the back, and mm. like you guys just stay back there and don't bother anyone. Yuck! That's how I would have ran my well, wagon train. Yeah. To promote his new route, the Hastings Cutoff, Lansford, Lansford Hastings sent riders to deliver letters to traveling migrants. On July twelfth, the Reeds and Donners were given one of them. Hastings warned the migrants they could expect opposition from the Mexican authorities in California and advised them to band together in large groups. He also claimed to have, quote, worked out a new and better road to California and said he would be waiting at Fort Bridger to guide the migrants along the new cutoff. Shady and, fucker, uh, huh? <laughs> right. Hastings, as you said earlier, just to remind people, because we went through a lot of names there, he was the one that wrote the Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California and tried to come up with the alternative route to the Oregon Trail. So, Yeah, and he right. had never traveled it whenever he uh, yeah. wrote it. He just kind of looked at a map and was like, hey, that looks like it would yeah, be right. easier. <laughs> Lansford Hastings, <laughs> professional bullshitter. Yeah, right. Yeah. On July 20th at the Little Sandy River, most of the wagon train opted to follow the established trail via Fort Hall. A smaller group opted to head for Fort Bridger and needed a leader. Most of the younger men in the group were Euro European immigrants and not considered ideal leaders. James Reed had lived in the U.S. for a considerable time, was older, and had military experience, but his attitude rubbed a lot of people in the party the wrong way. They saw him as an aristocrat and very arrogant. By comparison, the mature, experienced American-born Donners Peaceful and charitable nature made him the group's first choice. So that's where you get the Donner party. He's the leader of it. Yeah, he's the older guy, probably more experienced. That makes sense. The members of the party were comfortable well and well off, you know, by accommodation standards like food and things like that. 
and this is where we, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the reeds. They brought, they had like a working uh, uh, stove in their cabin or in their wagon, like all this stuff that really, like, <laughs> yeah, all this stuff that really weighed it down. So when the going gets uh, mm-hmm. gets tough here later on, it's like, oh fuck, we shouldn't have brought an oven with us and all this random <laughs> shit. <laughs> but they're like, if Ian and Mike went camping, what we would bring to survive, like. Uh, a, a little oven and oh we didn't bring tents we just got an airbnb down the road so we're gonna go stay over there <laughs> that's exactly right yeah oh you guys went fishing for your food we bought filet fishes from mcdonald's because we're bougie and we don't like to get our fingernails dirty <laughs> i think they i read they actually had like some sort of feather fancy feather bed with them too so yeah you're right well and wasn't part of this they were going out there to get rich right like wasn't this the gold rush like, you know, part of the reason why you go out there is to make more money and get rich. The gold so, rush is a couple years later, but yeah. Well, what year What year are we talking here? 1846. Ah, so they're what? Well, they're ahead of the game, Dave. They're trying to beat the rest of the people well, coming out in the 40 and, you know, three years later. Makes sense. Well, although they were called pioneers, most of the party lacked skills and experience for traveling through mountains and just the general land. Additionally, the party had little knowledge about how to interact with Native Americans. So all the skills so necessary, going, yeah. <laughs> and they're just going blind. <laughs> Jesus. Journalist Edwin Bryant reached Black's Fork a week ahead of the Donner Party. He saw the first part of the trail and was concerned it would be too difficult for the wagons in the Donner group, especially with so many women and children. He returned to Black's Fork to leave letters warning several members of the group not to take Hastings' shortcut. Red flag number one, here we go. By the time the Donner Party reached Black's Fork on July 27th, Hastings had already left, leading the 40 wagons of the Harlan Young group. Because of Jim Bridger's trading post would get more business if people used the Hastings cutoff, he told the party that the shortcut was a smooth trip without rugged country and hostile Native Americans and would therefore shorten their journey by 350 miles. Water would be easy to find along the way, although a couple days crossing a 30 to 40 mile dry lake bed would be necessary. So it should be fine. Everything's in order. No problems. I I foresee no problems the rest of the story. (laughs) Well, and this guy is just absolutely full of shit. He was just lying to to get people to to go like stop at his little store you know thing and and be able to sell like pelts and stuff like that reed was very impressed with this information and pushed for the hastings cutoff none of the party received bryant's letters warning them to advise hastings route at all costs in his diary account bryant states his opinion that bridger deliberately hid the letters which was a shared view by reed in his later testimony so like i said he was hiding them because he could make money off of this too yeah Pretty, pretty low down dirty. At Fort Laramie, Reed met an old friend named James Kleiman, but some sources say it's James Kleiberg, who is coming from California. Kleiman warned Reed not to take the Hastings cutoff, telling him that wagons would not be able to make it and that Hastings' information was inaccurate. Maybe listen to your buddy Jim. You might know what he's <laughs> right? talking about. On July 31st, 1846, the party left the Black's Fork after four days of rest and wagon repairs. 11 days behind the leading Harlan Young Group, Donner hired a replacement driver and the company was joined by the McCutcheon family consisting of 30-year-old William, 
his 24-year-old wife, Amanda, and their two children from New Mexico, who claim to have knowledge of the Native Americans and terrain on the way to California. I hope everyone's paying attention because to listen to the second half of this episode, you have to take a quiz remembering all the names that we've mentioned thus far. <laughs> you won't let it is fill in the blank. Two. It is not. It is fill in the blank. Not multiple choice. <laughs> you only scored seventy percent. You can't. You have to re-listen to part one. Yeah. Well, not even. I'm not even saying it'll be two parts. I'm just saying halfway through the episode, we're going to stop, and then there's a link you can click to the next part <laughs> if you pass your test. <laughs> you got to pass. Yeah, and you got to have above a seventy percent. <laughs> We don't grade on a curve either. No, we don't. <laughs> the party turns south to follow the Hastings cutoff. No, don't do it. He's lying. <laughs> no. Within days, they found the train to be much more difficult than described. Oh, my God. Drivers were forced to lock the wheels of their wagons to prevent them from rolling down steep inclines. Several years of traffic on the main Oregon Trail made it easy and an obvious path whereas the cutoff was more difficult to find that's why it's called a trail it's a it's a literal trail (laughs) hastings wrote directions and left letters stuck to trees on august 6th the party found a letter from him advising them to stop until he could show them an alternate route that had to be taken by the harlan young party reed charles t stanton and william pike rode ahead to get to hastings they encountered extremely difficult canyons where boulders had to be moved and walls cut to get to a river below. And it was a route that would likely just break the, the wagons. In his letter, Hastings had offered to guide the, the Donner party around the more difficult areas, but he rode back only part way, indicating the general direction to follow. This son of a bitch. Mm. What if your directions blow away when they're taped to a tree or whatever he did? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Like the anything fuck? could happen to that. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that the next time you like fucking text someone and how easy that is. And then they were fucking stapling notes to trees. Do you realize how fucked I would be if I lived back in this time? <laughs> you and me both, Pally. I can't go anywhere without GPS. I would be fucking done for. <laughs> Dude, you'd be either just curled up in a ball crying or eaten by a bear within three hours tops. <laughs> yeah, I would not make it very long on this. <laughs> they would have just drowned you guys in a river when you were born. I'd be like, no, nah, these guys are fucking clowns. They're not probably the best. <laughs> probably the best option. <laughs> Put them in a the river underwater, or just or keep us around, you know, as Dumb and Dumber style until you got hungry, and then be like, well, we'll kill one of them and eat them. <laughs> Let's fatten them up with all these Wendy's triple cheeseburgers, and then we'll eat them when they fucking. When we're hungry. (laughs) Stanton and Pike stopped to rest and Reed returned to the, the group alone, arriving four days after the party's departure. Without the guide they had been promised, the group had to decide whether to turn back and rejoin the traditional trail, follow the tracks left by the Harlan Young party through the difficult terrain of Weber Canyon, or go on their own trail in the directions that Hastings had recommended. At Reed's urging, the group chose the new Hastings route. No, don't do it. No. (laughs) Their progress slowed to about one and a half miles a day. All able-bodied men were required to clear brush, fell trees, and move rocks to make room for the wagons. Dave, that's your setting on a treadmill typically, right? One and a half miles a day. (laughs) (laughs) That's the speed you go. (laughs) It's not too far off. 
<laughs> Sounds like a great trip, though, getting to get out there and see the wilderness and cut trees oh, down yeah, and move riveting. boulders. Sounds great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love it. All that manual labor. Oh, man. As the Donner Party made its way across the Wasatch Range of Rocky Mountains, the Graves family, who had set off to find them, reached them. They consisted of 57-year-old Franklin Ward Graves, his 47-year-old wife Elizabeth, and their nine children, plus a son-in-law. You really need some more prophylactics in, uh, back in these days. <laughs> My God. Their arrival brought the Donner Party to officially 87 members with 60 to 80 wagons. Jesus. 60 to 80 wagons. That's almost everyone having their personal wagon. It's true, yeah. I know most, a lot of them were probably filled with supplies and stuff. I'm just saying. That's a lot of wagons. The Graves family had been part of the last group to leave Missouri, confirming the Donner Party was at the back of the year's western exodus. It was August 20th by the time they reached a point in the mountains where they could look down and see the Great Salt Lake. It took almost another two weeks to travel out of the Wasatch Range. The men began arguing and doubts were expressed about the leadership of those who had chosen this route, in particular James Reed. Food and supplies began to run out for some families. Stanton and Pike had ridden out with Reed but had become lost on their way back. By the time the party had found them, they were a day away from eating their horses. They were so hungry. Mm. Ouch. Have you ever had horse meat? I have no. not. I don't think I have, have you? either. No, I don't think so. Would you try it? Sure. I think I would too. I'm open to trying You know, all foods at least once. The only thing I will not eat is dog. Yeah, I would not do that. It or doesn't cat. sound appealing. Fuck cats. Everyone should be eating cats. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm pretty um, sure I ate some kind of fucked up uh, meat from a Chinese food place one time. Yeah, it's called really? a cat. And, uh, it's a cat. Put them on blast. Name the exact place and location. It was in Parma, but I can't Don't worry. Remember. Nobody listens. No one listens to this show. <laughs> no one in Parma listens to this show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was in Parma. It was uh, General Says Chicken. Well, motherfucker, I, I wish you would have smartened me up because I worked over there and ate at many of Chinese places. And mm. who knows what I have consumed now. Yeah, it's whatever the one on the corner where my apartment used to be. Can't remember the name of it. Yeah, I got I got chicken and I was eating it. And then like one of the pieces like split and, you know, it was like broken half. And it was definitely not, not chicken meat. <laughs> it was like purple kind of. It was oh. weird. It was not chicken. Ooh-wee. <laughs> I had uh, I was eating. This is way off topic, but this just goes shows this shows that I've been through the same hardships as this this Donner um, pilgrimage. <laughs> the same hardships. <laughs> I was eating. I got a uh, twenty piece McNugget from uh, McDonald's the other day. Took a bite into one, and it was just straight fucking bone. And I was a like, oh yeah. And that that mm. that's maybe happened twice in my entire life. And I've put away enough nuggets that I feel pretty comfortable eating them. Mm. Um, but there was a bone in one of them and I was like, oh fuck, this is gross. So, you know, I know what they've been through. <laughs> <laughs> On August 25th, Luke Halloran, who we said that he had tuberculosis and they were just passing him off back and forth. He finally died. Mm. A few finally days. died. <laughs> wow. God damn. Oh, man. It's three months later. Jeez. He lasted a while. <laughs> the way he said it, though, he's like, oh, thank God that fucking burden's gone. 
<laughs> that was Ian's tone. <laughs> that's probably how they all felt. That's probably how they all felt too. Yeah, probably. You're playing hot if potato. They they, whoever has him when he died, they probably got a berry, and they're like, "Nope, not back to you. Back to you." See, or or Dave, could that have been like? You know, you got lucky. If you were smart, you would have preserved his meat and his organs mm. for future use. Just saying. It's true. A few days later, the party came across a torn and tattered letter from Hastings. The pieces indicated there were two days and nights of difficult travel ahead without grass or water. The party rested their oxen and prepared for the trip. After 36 hours, they set off to travel a 1,000-foot mountain in their path. <laughs> From its peak, they saw ahead of them a dry, barren plain, perfectly flat and covered with white salt, larger than the one that they had just crossed, and, quote, one of the most inhospitable places on earth. Their oxen were already tired, and their water was nearly gone. So they're in a great spot, in other words. (laughs) Sounds terrific. Sounds like every camping trip I ever imagined in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Having to climb a thousand foot mountain. Yeah, and you just you're running out of supplies. You don't know where you are. You know, you got to fucking live outside with the bugs and every other animal that will eat you. This story is a cautionary tale for why you should not be outdoors. Just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I want everyone who's a camper and outdoorsman to heed the words that we are saying tonight and just fucking stay home <laughs> or get like a camper, like an RV, and go. You know, do go that route. Listen to Mike. The end. He's looking out yeah. for your best interest. <laughs> Dave tells you never talk to police without an attorney. Great advice. I'm telling you, don't go fucking outdoors and go don't go camping. Don't be a hero. Get a camper or <laughs> stay in a fucking a hotel. <laughs> Just saying. If a bear wanted to, he could rip a tent to shreds and eat you before you even wake up or know what's happening. I'm just saying. Outdoorsman Mike has spoken. Yeah. Outdoorsman Mike yells this from the balcony of his fucking five-star hotel to you people (laughs) sleeping outside. (laughs) The party moved forward on August 30th, having no alternative. In the heat of the day, the moisture underneath the salt crust rose to the surface, and it turned into like a gummy material, and the wagon wheels sank into it. The days were blisteringly hot, and the nights were frigid. Several of the group saw visions of lakes and wagon trains and believed they had finally caught up to Hastings. After three days, the water was gone, and some of the party removed their oxen from the wagons to search for more. Some of the animals were so weakened that they were just left abandoned. Nine of Reed's ten oxen broke free, dying of thirst, and just took off into the desert looking for water. Many other families, cattle, and horses had also gone missing. The rough terrain caused irreparable damage to some of the wagons, but no human lives had been lost yet. Instead of the promised two-day journey over 40 miles, the journey across the 80 miles of Great Salt Lake Desert had taken six. Wow. So almost a week with no water, man. I mean, you know. So of course they're hallucinating. That's brutal. They're extremely dehydrated here. I'm kicking Hastings' ass when I finally get to him, right? (laughs) Well... You'll be crawling to him by the time you get to him with his, you know, starved and dehydrated. But yeah, sure. At this point, no one in the party had remaining faith in the Hastings cutoff as they recovered at the springs on the other side of the desert. They spent several days trying to recover cattle, retrieve the wagons left in the desert, and transfer their food and supplies to other wagons. 
Reed's family suffered the heaviest losses, and Reed became more assertive, asking all the families to give an inventory of their goods and food to him. He suggested that two men should go to Sutter's Fort in California. He had heard that John Sutter was very generous to pioneers and could assist them with extra provisions. And this is what I mean. Like they've packed up their wagon and that shit just broke. <laughs> like their stuff yeah. got all fucked up. So now he's all angry and stuff. It's like, well, dummy, why'd you, why'd you pack it with the oven and stuff? <laughs> and why'd you pick you the Hastings pizza? cut you off? Pizza? <laughs> also that. I don't blame the guy for wanting his pizza rolls, though. Like, come on. Oh, boy. Well, speaking of the gold rush, that John Sutter, that's where gold uh, rush started at Sutter's Mill a couple years later. Look at that. It's all tied together. By the end of this episode, we're going to be talking about Joe Montana and his Super Bowl wins for the San Francisco 49ers. (laughs) It's going to all tie together, folks. Charles Stanton and William McCutcheon volunteered to go on this dangerous trip. The remaining working wagons were pulled by teams of cows, oxen, and mules. It was the middle of September, and the two young men who went in search of the missing oxen reported that another 40 miles of desert was ahead. Their cattle and oxen were now exhausted and lost a ton of weight, but the Donner Party crossed the next stretch of desert relatively unharmed. The journey seemed to get easier, particularly through the valley next to the Ruby Mountains. Despite their near hatred of Hastings, they had no choice but to follow his tracks, which at this point were now weeks old. On September 26th, two months after starting the cutoff, the Donner Party rejoined the traditional trail along a stream that became known as the Humboldt River. Hastings' shortcut had probably delayed them by a month. A month! A month! It's like having your wife give you directions in the old days. When you, you look, you look over, she's got the map upside down. Oh boy, he ain't lying. Whew. Or me giving directions. Well, sure. Or, or Ian just it. going any, not even giving directions, just Ian going anywhere. Period. Along the Humboldt, the group met Paiute Native Americans who joined them for a couple days, but stole or shot several oxen and horses. <laughs> By now, it was well into October, and the Donner family split off to make better time. Two wagons in the remaining group became tangled, and John Snyder angrily beat the ox of Reed's hired teamster, Milt Elliott. When Reed stepped in, Snyder proceeded to hit his head with the whip handle, and when Reed's wife attempted to stop it, she too was hit. Reed retaliated by fatally plunging a knife into Snyder's collarbone. Well, yeah, I'll do it. Trouble amongst the ranks. Hmm. Mike, do you know what an ox is? I'm just curious. I do. Okay. I played Oregon Trail. I know what oxen are. <laughs> I was curious. Yeah. I'm not going to ever touch one or go look at one in person, but I'll look at pictures on Google Images. <laughs> I mean, are you going to tell us what it is? I'm just curious if you know what an ox is. Oh, I mean, do you, I mean, it's like a big ass like cow slash bull type thing, oh, isn't right. it? Yeah. Yeah. Are they in the same like What's a, family it's or a, it's species? A, it's a it's a bull, a male cow that's been castrated. Okay. Because I didn't know what the definition See? was. I looked it up beforehand. And I thought I would bust you with it. I knew what an ox was. I didn't know that specific. <laughs> I I will admit I did not know that specific <laughs> definition, but I did know what an ox was. What was the story? Do you guys remember the story? Like, uh, babe, was, and the blue who ox. was it? Was yeah, babe, the big blue ox or whatever. Paul Bunyan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, I mean, as a kid, I just knew that. Yeah, and yeah. then from there, Oregon Trail, and then I don't think I've talked about an ox since we covered the story here tonight. I think that's probably accurate. Yeah. That evening, the witnesses gathered around to discuss what was to be done. 
United States laws were not enforced west of the Continental Divide in what was then Mexican territory, and wagon trains often carried out their own justice. But George Donner, the party's leader, was a full day ahead of the main wagon train with his family. Snyder had been seen to hit James Reed, and some claimed he also hit Reed's wife, Margaret. But Snyder had been really popular, and everybody hated Reed for getting them on this uh, on this shortcut. Oh, my God, I bet they all wanted to kill him. <laughs> right? <laughs> Kessberg suggested that Reed should be hanged, but an eventual compromise allowed him to leave the camp without his family, who were to be taken care of by others. So they just banished him. They're like, get the fuck out of here. Wow. Reed left alone the next morning, unarmed, but his stepdaughter Virginia rode ahead and secretly provided him with a rifle and food. That's nice. Jeez, you're going to be out there with nothing. Yeah, I mean, they. I feel like that was, they were aiming for a death sentence without actually hanging him, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, by sending him off, sure. The troubles that the Donner Party had so far endured resulted in separate groups, each looking out for themselves with distrust of others. Grass was becoming scarce, and the animals were quickly weakening. To relieve the animals' load, everyone was expected to walk. Kessberg ejected Hardcoop, that was the old man we talked about earlier, from his wagon, telling the elderly man to walk or die. A few days later, Hardcoop sat down next to a stream. His feet were so swollen that they had split open, and he was never seen again. Ouch. William Eddy pleaded with others to go back and find him, but they all refused, saying they wouldn't waste any more resources on a man who was almost 70 years old. It sounds like the, our country today. <laughs> I ain't wearing no mask. Fuck your grandma. Fuck her. <laughs> Freedom. <God> damn. <laughs> That's right. Sound familiar? <laughs> she gonna die oh, soon anyway. Familiar. I ain't wearing no mask. <laughs> Meanwhile, Reed caught up with the Donners and went ahead with one of his teamsters, Walton Heron. The two shared a horse and were able to cover 25 to 40 miles per day. The rest of the party rejoined the Donners, but their troubles continued. Native Americans chased away all of Graves' horses, and another wagon was left behind. With grass in short supply, the cattle spread out more, which allowed the Paiutes to steal 18 more during one evening. Several months later, they shot another 21. That would be so scary. You're in a, you don't even know what you're doing. Like these people are very unprepared, but they don't even know how to deal with Native Americans. In the middle of the night, their their cattle and their oxen are getting picked off and stolen. Yeah. That would be so fucking scary. What kind of? Uh, I mean, they they had rifles and stuff, but do they have any experienced military guys? Besides, I guess a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah, a couple, but there's so many kids involved yeah. in this. Yeah, mostly kids, or at least a yeah. third, right? Yeah, open targets. Sure. So far at this point in the story, the group had lost nearly 100 oxen and cattle, and their rations were almost completely gone. With nearly all his cattle gone, Wolfinger stopped at the Humboldt sink to bury his wagon. Reinhardt and Spitzer stayed behind to help. They returned without him, reporting they had been attacked by Paiutes and he had been killed. Maybe they uh, killed them themselves. They wanted to get a head start on all the cannibalism. Yeah, right. <laughs> Got to start drying out the body to make jerky. <laughs> it's got a cure, right? You don't want to wait. Right. One more stretch of desert was ahead. The Eddie's oxen had been killed by Native Americans, and they were forced to abandon their wagon. 
The family had eaten all of their food, and other families refused to help their children. The Eddies were forced to walk, carrying their children, and extremely thirsty. Margaret Reed and her children were also now without a wagon, but the desert soon came to an end, and the group found the Truckee River, which was full of grassy areas. Mm, that's really bad. I would just lay down and start crying. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, I mean, like you're you're just walking miles and miles through. You're, you're no water, mm-hmm. barely any food. It's I don't know. Strength of spirit, I guess. I don't have that. Yeah, no. I would just sit down. I'd be like that old guy and just sit down yeah. and just that'd be the end of me. <laughs> <laughs> just die. <laughs> your swollen, cracked feet. Yeah, like nope, not doing this anymore. Yeah, be like, good game, guys. I'm done. (laughs) Just going to sit here and die. (laughs) Reset. They had only a little time to rest, so the group traveled on to cross the Sierra Nevada before the snows came. One of the two men who had left the month earlier to seek assistance in California found the group, and he brought mules, food, and two Miwok Native Americans named Lewis and Salvador. He also brought news that Reed and Heron, although worn down and starving, had succeeded in reaching Sutter's Fort in California. Faced with one last push over mountains, it was October 20th, and they had been told the pass would not be snowed in until the middle of November. Family by family, they resumed their journey, first the Breens, then the Kessbergs, Stanton with the Reeds, Graves, and the Murphys. The Donners waited and traveled last. After a few miles of rough terrain, an axle broke on one of their wagons. Jacob and George Donner went into the woods to fashion a replacement. George Donner sliced his hand open while chiseling the wood, and at the time it seemed to be just a superficial wound. Well, a superficial wound has been known to put Mike Namapod out of action for months at a time. So that would have been it for me. Your old texting uh, issue with your, was that your left hand or right hand that you cut? Yeah, well, that's but that's because I'm a weird texter to begin with. I think we've talked about this. I text with my right thumb and left index finger. I've never been able to use my left thumb to text. So I use my right thumb, left index finger, and I slice the tip of my left index finger once so I couldn't touch the screen because I had like a bandage on, and it just ruined my life. (laughs) Yeah, if I remember that conversation correctly in one of the shows, you said you uh, it was hard for you to get out of bed during the day because it was so stressful with not being yeah. able to text properly <laughs> again between that and between the chicken bo- the bone and my nugget like i get exactly what they're going through i'm glad you have empathy i don't know uh, where it comes i really from, i mean but... <laughs> it's tough man you just don't even want to get up in the morning yeah sure at least you don't have to uh, fashion a new axle out of a fucking tree right <laughs> well i mean if i had to do that of course i could but you know i choose not to well of course this is a crazy thing too about like just building an axle out of uh, out of a tree. It's like when these along these trails, like the the Oregon Trail or any of the stuff. Like if there wasn't a cabin and they needed it for some reason, they'd be like, "All right, we're just gonna fucking build a cabin." They just start chopping down trees and just <laughs> right. build a cabin. Like, goddamn. <laughs> yeah. Well, like fucking uh, Ted Kaczynski last week, Unabomber's. You know, decide to build his own cabin in Montana. Yep. Like, goddamn, pal. I mean, he was a certified genius, but still available in the archives. Snow began to fall, and the Breens made it up the quote massive, nearly vertical slope, one thousand feet to Truckee Lake, now known as Donner Lake, three miles from the summit, 
and camped near a cabin that had been built two years earlier by another group of pioneers. The Eddies and Kessbergs joined the Breens attempting to make it over the pass, but they found the five to ten foot snowdrifts and they were unable to find the trail. So I see the weather forecast had the same accuracy back then as they do today. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> they turned back for Truckee Lake, and within a day, all families were camped there except the Donners, who were five miles below them, which was half a day's trip. Over the next few days, several more attempts were made to get over the pass with their wagons and animals, but all efforts failed. Stuck for the winter. Too late, too late. 60 members and associates of the Breen, Graves, Reed, Murphy, Kessberg, and Eddie families set up for winter at Truckee Lake. Three widely separated cabins of pine logs were used as their homes, with dirt floors and poorly constructed flat roofs that leaked when it rained. The Breens lived in one cabin, the Eddies and the Murphys in another, and the Reeds and the Graves in the third. Kessberg built a lean-to for his family against the side of the Breen cabin. The family used canvas or oxhide to patch the leaking roofs. Kessberg built a lean-to. What does that mean? Just like a, a little shelter connected to one of their cabins? Yeah, where like shares a wall, but you have your own roof kind of at an angle to meet the other roof outside. Yeah. It's like a 75-degree right, angle to hit the roof. Kind of like, I guess it would look like a triangle. So it kind of looks like it's, le it's leaning on yeah, the cabin. right. Yeah. The cabin had no windows or doors, only large holes to come in and out of. Of the 60 at Truckee Lake, 19 were men over 18, 12 were women, and 29 were children, six of whom were toddlers or younger. Farther down the trail, close to Addle Creek, the Donner families constructed tents to house 21 people, including Mrs. Wolfinger, her child, and the Donner's drivers. Their group was six men, three women, and 12 children in all. It began to snow again, and this was the beginning of a storm that lasted for eight days. By the time the party made camp, very little food remained from the supplies that Stan had brought back from Sutter's Fort. The oxen began to die, and their carcasses were frozen and stacked. Truckee Lake was not yet frozen, but the pioneers were unfamiliar with catching fish. <laughs> they don't even have fish. <laughs> this oh is really like if Mike and I set out on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, the most experienced hunter, killed a bear, but had little luck after that. The Reed and Eddie families had lost everything at this point. Margaret Reed promised to pay double when they got to California for the use of three oxen from the Graves and Breen's family. Graves charged Eddie... $25, which was normally the cost of two healthy oxen, for the carcass of an ox that was starved to death. It's price gouging, in my opinion. Yeah, right. <laughs> Do we have rules against that? <laughs> Desperation grew in the camp, and some reason that individuals might succeed in navigating the pass where the wagons could not. On November 12th, the storm stopped, and a small group tried to reach the summit on foot, but found the trek through the soft, deep, powdery snow too difficult and returned the same evening. Over the next week, two more attempts were made by other small groups, but both quickly failed. On November 21st, a large group of about 22 people successfully reached the peak. The party traveled about a mile and a half west of the summit, but this trip too was aborted, and they returned to the lake on November 23rd. Just like those trail babies, aborted. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn. 
so they're making no progress or if they do they <laughs> no. have to go back you know <laughs> i was reading there's like 22 feet fucking snow drifts how do you walk in a 22 foot snow drift man that's what i'm saying man yeah. i'd be like that old guy just good game yeah. life i'm done <laughs> dude i 100 percent. i i mean if i would know like what's ahead fuck yeah so let me die here with my cracked feet what does it say on bukowski's gravestone don't try yes that's the f that's the uh the, the, the spirited uh, <laughs> advice we give out on this show: Don't try. Yeah. Lay down and die. Don't, don't try. <laughs> we should Just do our own motivationals be, posters, like you find in offices and stuff. <laughs> Things get too tough. Don't try. <laughs> Go home, drink yourself to death. <laughs> Go walk into it. a lake. Yeah. <laughs> Just accept your life has turned to shit and just sit down and die. (laughs) Oh, good God. We're getting in the territory that we got into in that first Children of God that was never released, and we probably should be careful. Oh, my goodness. We are just kidding, everyone. We're just being Debbie Downers and making fun of Ian and I's lack of outdoorness. Patrick Breen began keeping a diary on November 20th. He wrote primarily about the weather, marking the storms and how much snow had fallen, but gradually began to include references to God and religion in his entries. Life at Truckee Lake was miserable. The cabins were cramped and filthy, and it snowed so much that people were unable to go outside for days. But were they tastefully decorated? I mean, (laughs) did they serve just brew coffee there every morning? (laughs) Doubtful. I don't know what I would do without it. Here's the thing about those cabins, too, is that, you know, it snowed so much that they couldn't go outside. It didn't have doors or windows, just holes to get in and out of. So it's literally your door is just a fucking hole that's covered up by snow. Yeah. I mean, that would be so claustrophobic feeling. Yeah. Well, and then you're shitting in the house, I'm sure. Well, you're probably not eating much, so maybe not. But I'm sure it smells like a sewer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, and they probably put like what the ox hide over like the some of the holes too, right? So it's probably not snow in the doorway. Maybe like just like a like an ox hide blocking the door. So you you probably are still getting snow and cold air blowing in. It smells putrid. Well, I hear this next sentence where we're getting rid of the ox hide because diet soon consisted of <laughs> ox hide strips which were boiled to make a glue like jelly substance. <laughs> Mm, sounds tasty. <laughs> the ox and horse bones were boiled over and over again to make a soup, and they became so brittle that they would crumble when when chewing on them. So I I picture like the the um, oxide strips that were like glue like jelly, almost to like like when you cook like a roast and like you get like that that like soft fat mm-hmm. and it's like gelatin almost. Like that's what I picture. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Like when fat liquefies, it turns gelatinous. Yeah, like that's yeah. just essentially what I think of. Like that's what they're eating. Except the gelatinous fat's fucking delicious when it comes off a pig, and I don't think this stuff probably was. Well, yeah, no, I don't think this stuff was. This stuff wasn't kept as well as you know, <laughs> the pig off of a fat or the pig off of a fat, the fat off of a pig. I pictured it as almost like like boiling leather until it turned into like this gluey yeah, like coagulant yeah, yeah that's what i picture yeah. yeah and when they were boiling these these bones sometimes they were softened by being charred and then they ate the bones bit by bit the murphy children picked apart the oxhide rug in front of their fireplace and roasting it on the fire and ate it mm. 
so they weren't times. even yeah i mean they weren't even getting it to the the jelly like substance they were just roasting some fucking mm. oxide and then eating it oh, was that stuff tanned i mean it has to go through a tanning process right like could i eat my leather jacket and survive same thing right i guess so yeah yeah why don't you do that dave and let us know should i okay i think you should try it for the show <laughs> It'll be a bonus episode. Dave eats his leather jacket. <laughs> I'm going to go cook my leather jacket. We'll be right back. We like to drink beer. A lot of it. After a long night of drinking and talking crime and conspiracies, there's nothing that wakes us up and gets us ready to start the day better than just brew coffee. With a great selection of roast levels to choose from, you're guaranteed to find one that suits your style. Small batch roasted to highlight the unique features of each coffee bean, Just Brew Coffee caters to both casual and hardcore coffee drinkers alike. Since 2010, Just Brew Coffee has worked tirelessly to perfect the roasting process and technique, which has resulted in seriously delicious, always flavorful, and never bitter tasting coffee. If you're already drinking JBC, raise your mug. If you're not, raise your standards. Check out their online store at youjustbrew.com and up your coffee game today. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your order of two pounds or more. And remember, they roast, you just brew. Today's episode of Necronomapod is brought to you by Beardology. There are a lot of imitators out there, but there's only one place I buy my beard oil. Beardology beard oil nourishes your skin and won't leave you with that greasy feel. With over 17 cents available in their extensive product line, I trust my beard to Beardology. You can find Beardology at Beardology.co. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Beardology, discover the best way to avoid the shave. Two-thirds of the migrants at Truckee Lake were children. Mrs. Graves was in charge of eight, and Lavinia Murphy and Eleanor Eddy took care of nine. Migrants caught and ate mice that came into their cabins. And like at that point, it's like how much meat can you get off of a mouse, you yeah, know? How much? Yeah, but when you're starving, I guess it's something. Yeah. It's probably just like eating nothing more than like a chicken wing. Yeah, yeah, probably. Many of the people at Truckee Lake were soon weakened and spent most of their time in bed. Occasionally, one would be able to make the full day trek to see the Donners. News came that Jacob Donner and three hired men had died. One of them, Joseph Reinhardt, confessed on his deathbed that he murdered Wolfinger. That was the guy earlier when they went to uh, went to look for, see if they could catch up with Hastings. That's right, and, yeah. And they, they came back without that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that superficial wound that George Donner had gotten making that axle had become infected, which left four men to work at the Donner camp. Mm. He, just, he should have went to urgent care and had that thing looked at, I guess. <laughs> let, the, let that fester, you know. You know what happens. Margaret Reed had managed to save enough food for a Christmas pot of soup, but by January they were facing starvation and considered eating the oxides that were used as their roof. Fucking bougie Christmas pot of soup. Yeah, but what the fuck yeah. was it? Some yeah. mice and some bones? <laughs> <laughs> Probably tasted fantastic to them. We laugh now. Things are about to take a major twist. (laughs) Margaret Reed and a few other women attempted to walk out, reasoning that it would be better to try and bring food back than sit and watch the children starve. They were gone for four days in the snow before they had to turn back. Their cabin was now uninhabitable. The oxide roof had served as their food supply, and the family moved in with the Breens. 
and the servants went to live with other families. One day the graves came by to collect the debt owed by the reeds and took the ox hides, which was all the family had to eat. Man. I'd be like, motherfucker, how are you going to come by and try and collect yeah. a $25 debt on me in the middle of all this stuff? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I mean, they're just, they're, I guess at this point, they're all just fighting for their families, like getting whatever they can to survive. Yeah. Do you think the servants are like, hey, can I, am I going to get paid this week? Or <laughs> Dude, if I was a servant, I'd be working on my exit plan because yeah. you know you might be the first mm-hmm. to go. I'd be like, how the fuck do I get out of here? Yep. Yeah, I'd be like, we're, I'm not a servant anymore. Yeah. This situation has made yep. me not a servant anymore. <laughs> I, I, here's my two-week notice or my two-hour notice. I will be leaving at lunch. Motherfuckers don't have the right to eat me. <laughs> the mountain group at Truckee Lake began to fail. Spritzer died, and then Bayless Williams, a driver for the Reeds, also died. More from malnutrition than starvation. Franklin Graves made 14 pairs of snowshoes out of oxbows and hide. A group of 17 men, women, and children set out on foot in an attempt to cross the mountain pass. Four of the men were fathers, and three of the women who were mothers gave their young children to other women. They packed lightly, taking what had become six days' rations, a rifle, a blanket each, a hatchet, and some pistols, hoping to make their way to Bear Valley. Historian Charles McGlasson later called this snowshoe party the Forlorn Hope. Two of those without snowshoes, Charles Berger and 10-year-old William Murphy, turned back early on. The snowshoes were effective on the climb. The members of the group were neither well-nourished or accustomed to camping in snow 12 feet deep, and by the third day, most of them were snow blind. How do you camp in 12-foot deep snow? Like what, what exactly does that involve? <laughs> well, Dave, I'm, I'm, tur- I'm currently writing a book on how to properly do that, so it'll be out in a few weeks. Available at your local Barnes and Noble. Like, I don't even know what that means. It's crazy. Barnes and Noble is a bookstore, Dave. I know that most people probably don't even know what that is anymore, this but guy. you know, there's still a few around. <laughs> I haven't been in a bookstore. I couldn't even. I used to love going, oh, get, getting coffee, sitting in a I bookstore. Still, I love it. I still love bookstores. I cannot read on my tablet. It hurts my eyes. So I'm still like a hard copy of a book type guy. Mm. So I'll yeah. either buy them off Amazon and then read the book, or I'll go to uh, go to the Barnes and Noble nearby. Yeah, I miss because that. we do still have like one of like the seven left in this entire country. Yeah, that's a cool spot too. On the sixth day, Eddie discovered his wife had hidden a half pound of bear meat in his pack. Hell yeah! Party time! Right? Yeah, dude. He probably... Can you imagine like how excited he got, but he had to like contain it to himself so that nobody else knew? <laughs> he looked like that that GIF file of Chris Pratt <laughs> sitting at the table when he... You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> when he gets all excited yeah. and like looks at the camera. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god can you imagine i know we're making light of this can you imagine if this trip was filmed like a mockumentary show like the office where it's like where like they cut to like a like a cutaway interview this motherfucker broke in and ate all my ox hide i'm gonna kill this son of a bitch that was keeping me and my family warm <laughs> like, like he he opens his backpack he sears the bear me and just looks at the camera and smiles <laughs> I know we're making light of a terrible situation, oh, but whatever. I mean, it's this was almost 200 fucking years ago. Time heals all wounds, Mike. The group set out again on the morning of December 21st, 
Stan had been straggling for several days and remained behind, saying he would follow shortly. His remains were found in that location the following year. Creepy. The group had become lost and confused. After two more days without food, Patrick Dolan proposed that one of them should volunteer to die in order to feed the others. So now, now we're taking a dark turn here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some suggested a duel, while other accounts describe an attempt to create a lottery to choose a member to sacrifice. Eddie suggested that they just keep moving until someone just simply died. But a blizzard forced the group to stop. A guy named Antonio, which was the animal handler, was the first to die. And then Franklin Graves was the next casualty. Karma. That's the guy that came trying to get his 25 bucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> See That's what, what you get you for trying to, collect, yeah, trying to collect debts in the middle of That's a right. fucking snowstorm and shit. Seriously. Exactly. Can you imagine having that conversation with a group? Like, should we, like a serious conversation. Do we need to kill someone and eat them? Yeah. That's just insane. Except I'd be like, wild. you volunteer, motherfucker. It's your idea. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Again, <You> like, first. <laughs> like the office, the scene where they're all in the, uh, when it's the murder mystery and they're all in the conference room holding their fake guns at each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's a Mexican standoff. <laughs> As the blizzard continued, Patrick Dolan began to rant deliriously, stripped off his clothes and ran into the woods. The interesting thing about this is, and they wouldn't have known this at the time, really, is that's a sign of hypothermia. Yeah, you get hot. You're, yeah, yeah, you start to, you can start, you know, getting delusional hallucinations, and you, your body just feels like it's on fire. So that makes sense that he would just mm-hmm. take off all his clothes and stuff. Yeah, right. Hmm. <coughs> Tiatlov, Tiatlov. <laughs> it's true. He returned shortly afterwards and died a few hours later. Not long after, possibly because Murphy was near death, some of the group began to eat the flesh of Dolan's body. So that's some other karma. He's the one that suggested this shit, and now they're eating him. Mm, tasty. Mm. Probably t- tasted, you know, freezer burned. So pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what are they using? Some to... salt, pepper, garlic? What are they, what are they seasoning that with? <laughs> Put a little oxen hide on the top of it, Dave. <laughs> Kind of wood you smoking that well. <laughs> <laughs> Lemuel's sister tried to feed some to her brother, but he ended up dying shortly afterwards. William Eddy and the two Miwok Native Americans, Salvador and Lewis, refused to eat any human meat. They just they were not doing that. The next morning, the group stripped the muscle and organs from the bodies of Antonio, Dolan, Graves, and Murphy. They dried them to store for days ahead taking care to make sure no nobody would have to eat his or her relatives. Just chop it all up and switch it around and nobody knows who's who, right? <laughs> don't worry about it. I don't know. I, would, I mean, you guys would eat, wouldn't you? You got to do what you got to do. I mean, I think you get to a point where you have to, right? I mean, like you might not want to, but you have to eat something or you're going to die. Yeah, I'm not and, starving you know, on if you're trying, yeah. If you want to take care of your family, you need to be alive. So I think you would do it. Set the plate, motherfucker. It's eating time. Yeah. I mean, you're going to make sure your kids probably are fed first, and then, you know, make sure your your wife's fed and make sure everyone's fed, and then, then you eat yourself and whatever. You get at least enough energy to go about another day. Yeah, I agree. No moral dilemma over here. Nope. After three days rest, they set off again searching for the trail. 
William Eddy eventually gave in to his hunger and ate human flesh, but that was soon gone. So he's like, uh, he came in too late to the party on that. Everybody was already eaten. <laughs> They're all licking their lips, <laughs> wiping their face. Mm. <laughs> Dolan was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> they began taking apart their snowshoes to eat the oxhide webbing and discussed killing Lewis and Salvador for food. But William Eddy warned the two men in the middle of the night, and they, they quietly left while everyone was sleeping. Yeah, I think we're going to head out now. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to take off. Yeah. It's been nice <laughs> seeing you guys. Just catch up sometime. <laughs> William Eddy is the only one. I mean, I'm a, you can't fault people for doing what you have to do in, in a crazy situation like this, but William Eddy is the only one that has a conscience at this point in the story of anybody... Well, of any of the I mean, men involved. Yeah. Like there's a difference between doing what you have to do and like killing people to eat them. Like if someone dies, fine, you can go ahead and eat them. I don't I would like to think I would not want to be like, oh, I'm gonna kill Dave so that we can eat him. Like <laughs> so there's a difference. If someone just right. dies, then okay, you have to eat them. I don't think I'm gonna be like plotting to kill the two uh Native Americans who are helping us travel and mm, eating them. Well, maybe. <laughs> are you plotting to kill them i'm saying desperate times sometimes call for desperate measures all right well at least kill like the pieces of shit in the group yeah i don't know I, yeah i mean I, it's hard to put yourself in that in that situation oh for sure like the worst situation of cold i've ever been in was when i had to push mike's car out of the school parking lot because it got <laughs> snowed in God, the way you guys described this it was like armageddon snow we were almost in a situation where we had to make me. a decision of as to who was going to eat the other oh, one I feel like. My God. like that was pretty close you guys are ridiculous <laughs> that was the worst that was the most traumatic thing we've both ever been through like that was nature getting the best of us <laughs> Yet we prevailed. We prevailed, and we didn't even eat each other. I was about to sit down and start eating the cardboard boxes <laughs> that I was trying to put underneath your tires. We had so many cardboard boxes. <laughs> we were snowed in. Oh Nobody ever God. believes me when I tell them how bad it was. Nobody believes me. There was no way I could have walked home that night. Oh, it was God. so bad. It was so bad. <laughs> it was. It was terrible. It was not terrible. <laughs> You're it was You're awful. absolutely ridiculous. Was my car. We we were out there for two hours digging my car out of the snow. <laughs> That's how deep the, the deep it was. I was not going to be able to walk home mm -hmm. in five feet of snow. <laughs> five feet. <laughs> it was pretty close. Oh boy! All right. We almost died on that night. Hope it doesn't snow this year. <laughs> Ian brings <laughs> Ian brings me out gloves. They were literally child gloves that barely made it over my knuckles and my hands. That's all we had. Like rations were short. We had to make do. <laughs> so we get for trying to watch UFC in the middle of a blizzard. Yep. A guy named Jay Fostick died during the night, leaving only seven members of this party left. Eddie and Mary Graves left to hunt, but when they returned with deer meat. Fostick's body had already been cut apart for food. After several more days, 25 since they had left Truckee Lake, they came across Salvador and Lewis again, who had not eaten for about nine days and were close to death. William Foster shot the two, believing their flesh was the rest of the group's last hope of avoiding starvation. Wow. Now that's told a couple different ways, too. 
is that they were the, like this way that they were close to death. There's others that it was like bad luck that they came upon Salvador and Lewis and they just straight up murdered them. Like they were fine and they mm-hmm. murdered them to eat them. You know, there's different ways it's told. Yeah, you'll never know for sure. On January 12th, the group stumbled into a Miwok camp looking so deteriorated that the camp's inhabitants initially ran away from them. And it was described in accounts of it say that they they looked like demons. They didn't even think they were people. They thought they were demons. Looks like the Walking Dead attacking your village. Yeah. It had to be terrifying. but look at this bullshit. If you th- if you believe that they just murdered Salvador and Lewis, who were Miwok Native Americans, the Miwoks took them in and gave them what they had to eat, which are acorns, grass, and pine nuts. So they just killed Lewis and Salvador, but the Miwoks are yeah. still helping them out. Mm. After a few days, Eddie continued on with the help of a Miwok to a ranch in a small farming community at the edge of the Sacramento Valley. They assembled a rescue party and found the other six survivors on January 17th. Their journey from Truckee Lake had taken 33 days. Wow, 33 days. Holy shit. James Reed made it out of the Sierra Nevada to Rancho Johnson in late October. He was safe and recovering at Sutter's Fort, but each day he became more concerned for his family and friends. He pleaded with Colonel John C. Fremont to gather a team of men to cross the path and help the group. In return, Reed promised to join Fremont's forces and fight in the Mexican-American War. Yeah, you got to remember that California was part of Mexico then, like that whole area over there. Parts of what, Nevada, Utah, Nevada, Utah, like that whole chunk of the country. He was joined by McCutcheon, who had been unable to return with Stanton, as well as some members of the Harlan Young Party. The Harlan Young Wagon train had arrived at Sutter's Fort on October 8th, the last to make it over the Sierra Nevada that season. The party of roughly 30 horses and a dozen men carried food supplies and expected to find the Donner Party on the western side of the mountain. When they arrived in in a river valley, they only found a pioneer couple, migrants who had been separated from their group who were near starvation. Two guides deserted Reed and McCutcheon with some of their horses, but they went on farther up the valley to the Yuba Bottoms, walking the last mile on foot. Reed and McCutcheon stood looking up at the Immigrant Gap, only 12 miles from the top, blocked by snow, possibly on the same day the Breens attempted to lead one last effort to get over the pass from the east, and discouraged they turned back and went to Sutter's Fort. Much of the military in California were engaged in the Mexican-American War, and with pretty much all able-bodied men being involved in it. Only three men responded to a call for volunteers to rescue the Donner Party. Reed was in San Jose until February because of regional uprisings and general confusion. He spent that time speaking with other pioneers and acquaintances. The people of San Jose responded by creating a petition to appeal the U.S. Navy to assist the people at Truckee Lake. Two local newspapers reported that members of the Snowshoe Party had resorted to cannibalism, which helped to gain sympathy for those who were trapped. Residents of Yerba Buena, many of them recent migrants, raised $1,300, which is the equivalent of $35,700 today, and organized relief efforts to build two camps to supply a rescue party for the refugees. That's nice. Good community activity. A rescue party, including William Eddy, started on February 4th from the Sacramento Valley. Rain and a rising river forced several delays. 
Eddie stationed himself at Bear Valley, while others made steady progress through the snow and storms to cross the path to Truckee Lake, burying their food at stations along the way so they did not have to carry it all. Three of the rescue party turned back, but seven of them went on. On February 18th, the seven-man rescue party climbed Fremont Pass, which is now the Donner Pass. As they neared where Eddie told them that the cabins would be, they began to shout. Mrs. Murphy appeared from a hole in the snow, stared at them, and asked, quote, Are you men from California, or do you come from heaven? <laughs> would you think she was that delirious and out of it? Probably at that point. I mean, I we're talking imagine, yeah. Just accepting like death is around the corner, so maybe this is it delusional the guys are like ma'am we're on a mission from god <laughs> blues brothers before your time guys <laughs> <laughs> the relief party handed out food in small portions concerned that it might kill them if if they overate because that's something i actually didn't know until i was reading this that if you're starving and you just start eating a bunch of food you can die yeah yeah I actually did know that and thought the same thing. And when they said that, or when I read this in the notes, I was like, oh, that's smart. It's called refeeding syndrome. It's, it's all available in my survival book coming out in a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that's in the chapter of when you get rescued, though. Yeah. Well, they saw that same kind of thing in, in uh, Nazi Germany when they reached the, the camps and stuff. Same kind of they had to limit people's intake for a while. Yeah, they just overeat. It's no good. Mm-mm. All of the cabins were buried in snow. The oxide roofs had began to rot, and the smell was just oh, was overpowering. Can't even imagine. Holy shit. Yeah. Thirteen people at the camps were dead, and their bodies had been loosely buried in snow near the cabin roofs. Not, not that loose, in case we need to get in there and get a snack, right? <laughs> <laughs> or not that tight. Not that tight. <laughs> they run out to those, those grave sites the way I run down to my deep freezer in the basement <laughs> to get pizza rolls when I'm hungry at midnight. <laughs> Like, God damn, I can use like 25 pizza rolls right now. I'm going to just sneak on down there. <laughs> or as we say here in the Midwest, oop, I'm just going to sneak on down there. <laughs> Some of the migrants seemed emotionally unstable. Three of the rescue party trekked to the Donners and brought back four children and three adults. George Donner's arm was so infected with gangrene, he could not move. So, so much for that being a superficial wound. Yeah. <laughs> 23 people were chosen to go with the rescue party leaving 21 in the cabins at Truckee lake and 12 at outer creek patty and tommy reed were soon too weak to cross the snowdrifts, and no one was strong enough to carry them margaret reed faced the decision of accompanying her two children to bear valley and watching her two frailest be taken back to Truckee lake without a parent so that's a tough i mean that's a really tough yeah. You know, send your two to possibly die and move forward or. Yep. Right. That's a tough call. She made one of the rescuers swear on his honor as a Mason that he would return for her children. Patty Reed told her, quote, well, mother, if you never see me again, do the best you can. Aww. Upon their return to the lake, the Breen's flatly refused to let them enter the cabin. But after one of the rescuers left more food, the children were allowed into the cabin so they were just like fuck you you're not coming in here which is kind of harsh i think a bit. yeah just a tad the rescue party was shocked to find that the first buried food station had been broken into by animals leaving them without food for four days after struggling on the walk 
over the past, John Denton slipped into a coma and died. One of the Kessberg daughters died soon after. After several days, more travel through difficult terrain, the rescuers grew very concerned that the children would not survive. Some of them ate the buckskin fringe off one of the rescuers' pants and the shoelaces of another. On their way down from the mountains, they met the next rescue party, which included James Reed. Upon hearing his voice, Margaret sank into the snow, overwhelmed. You know, uh, incidentally, this is where uh, assless chaps came from. Because <laughs> they were eating them off. Yeah, because the, the buckskin <laughs> over the ass had more material, so they ate that first, and they left with assless chaps. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. It's true. After these rescued migrants made it safely into Bear Valley, William Hook, Jacob Donner's stepson, broke into food stores and fatally gorged himself. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Damn. The others continued to Sutter's Fort, where Virginia Reed wrote, quote, I really thought I had stepped over into paradise. On March 1st, a second relief party arrived at Truckee Lake. These rescuers included... Veteran mountain men, most notably a guy named John Turner, who accompanied the return of Reed and McCutcheon. Reed was reunited with his daughter, Patty, and his weakened son, Tommy. An inspection of the Breen cabin found its occupants relatively well, but the Murphy cabin, according to author George Stewart, quote, passed the limits of description and almost of imagination. Oh my, what does that mean? Lavinia Murphy was caring for her eight-year-old son, Simon, and the two young children of William, Eddie, and Foster. She had deteriorated mentally and was nearly blind. The children had not been clean for days, and Louis Kessberg had moved into the cabin and could barely move due to an injured leg. No one at Truckee Lake had died during the interim between the departure of the first and the arrival of the second relief party. Patrick Breen documented a disturbing visit in the last week of February from Mrs. Murphy, who said her family was considering eating Mill Elliot. Reed and McCutcheon found Elliot, and later on, Reed and McCutcheon found Elliot's mutilated body. So they were not considering anything. <laughs> no, they were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> they were fucking doing it. <laughs> the Outer Creek camp was no better. The first two members of the relief party to reach it saw one of the inhabitants come out carrying a human leg. Like eating, gnawing on it like a turkey leg at the fair? That's what I thought. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like juices running down his chin. Yeah, right. (laughs) When they made their presence known, he threw it into a hole in the snow that contained the mostly dismembered body of Jacob Donner. I'm not doing anything. What do you Nothing to see here. I wasn't just carrying a whole human leg. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Still like chewing the meat and like wiping the juice off his face. Inside the tent, Elizabeth Donner refused to eat, although her children were being fed their father's organs. Oh, man. The rescuers discovered three bodies had already been eaten. In the other tent, Tabs and Donner was well, but George was very ill because of the, the gangrene infection he had in his shoulder. Mm-mm-mm. That guy was like sixty fucking years old too. <laughs> like Dude, I don't he's still holding he... on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this guy's yeah. a badass. Meanwhile, his nephews are, uh, you know, mowing down on dad's liver with a side of fava beans <laughs> over there in the next tent. <laughs> <laughs> the second relief got seventeen migrants from Truckee Lake, only three of whom were adults. Both the Breen and Graves families prepared to go. Only five people remained at Truckee Lake. 
Kessberg, Mrs. Murphy, and her son Simon, and the young Eddie and Foster children. Tams and Donner volunteered to stay with her sick husband after Reed informed her that a third relief party would arrive soon. Mrs. Donner also kept her daughters along with her. The walk back to Bear Valley was very slow. At one point, Reed sent two men ahead to retrieve the first buried food, expecting that a third relief party would arrive at any moment. A violent blizzard came after they climbed the pass. Five-year-old Isaac Donner froze to death, and Reed nearly died. Mary Donner's feet were badly burned because they were so frostbitten, she did not realize that she was sleeping with them in the fire oh, that they had started. Oh. Who wants toenails I, I with their s'mores? <laughs> I couldn't even imagine that. Like, you don't right. even know your feet are in a fucking campfire. That sounds pretty awful. When the storm passed, the Breen and Graves families were too exhausted to get up and move, and they had not eaten for days. The relief party had no choice but to leave without them. Wow, just left them there, huh? Yep. Three members of the relief party stayed, one at Truckee Lake and two at Outer Creek. When one, Nicholas Clark, went hunting, the other two, Charles Caddy and Charles Stone, made plans to return to California. Tams and Donner arranged for them to carry three of her children to California. Caddy and Stone took the children to Truckee Lake, but then left alone. William Foster and William Eddy, both survivors of the Snowshoe Party, started from Bear Valley to intercept Reed, taking with them a man named John Stark. After one day, they met Reed helping his children, all frostbitten and bleeding, but alive. Desperate to rescue their own children, Foster and Eddie persuaded four men, with pleading and money, to return to Truckee Lake with them. Eleven survivors were huddled around a fire that had sunk into a pit. The relief party split, with Foster, Eddie, and two others headed towards Truckee Lake. Two rescuers, hoping to save the healthiest, each took a child and left. John Stark refused to leave the others. He picked up two children and all the provisions and assisted nine remaining Breens and Graves to Bear Valley. All by himself, huh? Wow. Foster and Eddie finally arrived at Truckee Lake on March 14th, where they found their children dead. Kessberg told Eddie that he had eaten the remains of Eddie's son, and Eddie swore to murder Kessberg if they ever met in California. Yeah, I bet. Thanks for telling me, pal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that'd be uh, pretty upsetting. Like that bicep on your boy. It's pretty tasty. Jesus. <laughs> George Donner and one of Jacob Donner's children were still alive at Outer Creek. Tamsin Donner had just arrived at the Murphy cabin. She could have walked out alone, but chose to return to her husband, even though he was informed that no other relief party was likely to be coming soon. Foster and Eddie and the rest of the third relief left with four children. So there's only a few people left at this point. Two more relief parties were sent to evacuate any adults who still might be alive. Both turned back before getting to Bear Valley and no further attempts were made. On April 10th, almost a month after the third relief had left Truckee Lake, a group near Sutter's Fort organized a salvage party to recover what they could of the Donner's belongings. These would be sold with part of the proceeds used to support the orphan Donner children. The salvage party found the Outer Creek tents empty, except for the body of George Donner, who had died only days earlier. So he lasted a long time, then. They just missed him. Yeah. Huh. On their way back to Truckee Lake, they found Louis Kesberg still alive. According to him, Mrs. Murphy had died a week after the departure of the third relief. 
Some weeks later, Tamsin Donner had arrived at his cabin on her way over the pass, soaked and visibly upset. Kessberg said he put a blanket around her and told her to start out in the morning, but she died during the night. Suspicious. Yeah, the salvage party was super suspicious of him because they found a pot of human flesh in the cabin along with George Donner's pistol, jewelry, and $250 in gold. Oh, <laughs> oh Jesus. It's like, soup's on, boys. Get in here and sit down. <laughs> get a waltz hot. <laughs> Oof. A little shady. Incidentally, I was watching uh, an old Mysteries at the Museum not too long ago, and that pot's in a museum somewhere, and I cannot remember where it was because they did a Donner Party story. That was their, that was their little piece of stuff from the museum. Look at that. Yeah, I have to figure out what that is. After that was interesting. The men threatened to lynch Kessberg, who then confessed he had buried two hundred seventy-three dollars of Donner's money at Tamsin's suggestion, so that it could one day benefit their children. Yeah, it's On for the April- children, guys. It's for <laughs> the children. Yeah. That's it. On April twenty-ninth. 1847, Kessberg was the last member of the Donner Party to arrive at Sutter's Fort. Of the eight of the 87 people that made up the Donner Party, 48 survived. Only the Reed and Breen families remained intact. The children of Jacob Donner, George Donner, and Franklin Graves were orphaned. William Eddy was alone. Most of the Murphy family had died. Only three mules reached California, and all of the other animals they had died. Wow. What a feel-good story. That's the Donner Party. <laughs> Happy ending. Inauspicious ending. A little hungry, I gotta tell you guys. <laughs> it's making me hungry. Makes me feel good for, uh, you know, having a house and food stored up. I mean, they could have used a few cans of SpaghettiOs, right? Just saying. Or some uh, chunky Campbell's soup. Yeah, if they would have left right the stove. The- yeah, left the stove back home, brought just crates and crates of SpaghettiOs to eat cold. Right. They would have right. lived. Exactly. You'd have been fine. Just saying. There's a method to my madness. I'm preparing myself for the apocalypse. And when you guys all struggle, I'm going to be ready to go. Because I can survive on canned food forever. Apocalypse Mike. Yep. That's what they call me nowadays. Apocalypse Mike. Well, I'll be raptured up to heaven with all the other good Christians, so you, you'll be down here by yourself. I, of course I will be. There's no <laughs> place in heaven for a coxman like me. <laughs> There's rumors that I was the one who got married pregnant, but I cannot confirm nor deny. It's <laughs> a, a bold call there, pal. Well, I said it. Oh, boy. All right, well, uh, all right. I don't know, man. I don't know how the cannibalism would go. be interesting, I guess, for sure, but I would definitely partake. No judgment, no moral judgment with the cannibalism. I think we've talked about this before. Didn't we say if you were offered a chance to try human flesh, like now, would you do it? Yeah, probably. I would. I would not. We, yeah, we talked about this yeah. on uh, Issei Sagawa. Yes, because I think Dave and I both said yes, and Ian, you said no. Yeah. I heard, and I think I said the same thing, that it was really salty. Like, like bacon, but really more salty than bacon. Hmm. I don't know. Sure, it depends on the diet. Probably. Ain't too many grass-fed people in this country. Right. You eat me, it's going to be like a fucking double cheeseburger. <laughs> I don't know. I would. I think I would try it just to see. Eh, something different. Yeah. It'd be a tiny bite, and I probably would not ask for seconds. Yeah. Anyways. All right, Ian, what are your final thoughts on this one? This is a... Uh, I know I picked this one. This is a crazy story. Yeah, it was. it's really interesting. 
I don't know, man. I get super angry if I'm hungry. You know, I get real crabby and stuff, so I can't. And that's that's like if I go for like eight hours or something without something, I get eight real. hours. <laughs> Meanwhile, like days and days in the freezing cold. Yeah, so I can't even imagine what it would be like. But it's it's an interesting story, and it made me want to play uh, Oregon Trail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fuck, man. You can probably find that online, no? Somewhere yeah, you to can. play. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Send me the link if you find it because I want to play it too. I'm going to name my family after you guys. I'm going to see who dies and who makes it. <laughs> yeah, it is hard to imagine yourself, put yourself in that position. Well, go ahead, Dave. Your final thoughts? No, that is my final thought. Hard to imagine yourself in this position. Yeah. It's true. And and how you would react. I don't know. I don't think you ever know how you'd react until you get put in the Well, and I I'd also situation. don't know. If, can you control how you react? I mean, when you start getting dehydrated and starving and you're hallucinating, you know, we might think one thing, but then you act a completely different way because your body's just trying to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Unpredictable. It's wild. Let's hope we don't have to find out. <laughs> a lot of cannibalism <laughs> this month. <laughs> it's true. We'll be getting into some more of it next next week. Yes, we will. Fuck. We just love people eating people. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. We encourage it. Yeah. I'm lying. We don't encourage it. <laughs> Speaking of can- cannibalism... Patreon.com slash Necronomapod. <laughs> we have some shout outs to some uh, some new patrons. Also, I have a make good. Apparently, I butchered someone's name last week. Not uncommon and uh, not surprising. So apologies to Duani Reyes. I hope I said that right. I read it the way you phonetically sent it to me and hope I wasn't too drunk to fuck that one up. But anyways, uh, shout out uh, again to Duani Reyes. Um, appreciate you uh, becoming a patron. Also, Patreon shout-outs to Cassandra Valderrama, Dave1ABV, Tanya Ropuck, Beverly Barnes, Mackenzie Behrens, Renee Sadie, Russian, Marcus Sickles, Holly Hale, Lori Morse, Josephine Glick, and Stacy Becker. Thank you guys very much for your patronage. We are at patreon.com slash necronomapod. Uh, Ian, what do you got for us? For iTunes, I have one for Tamakotten, Casey J, Amberg182, and Fitzgerald BB. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. Thank you very much. Dave, you got any shout outs? Anything you want to get off your chest? Uh, no, no, I don't. Thanks for asking, though. Always. All right. Well, I think I'm going to fucking go down to my deep freezer downstairs and get out some pizza rolls because I have that luxury. <laughs> and that's going to be the rest of my night. Sounds good. Of course, it'll be after I have maybe a beer or two. I got to cool down after all this cannibal talk. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> really excited. Hot under the collar there, pal. <laughs> we are at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at Necronomapod. Uh, I believe on YouTube, we just recently got a celebrity endorsement, our first one. So check that out, <laughs> youtube.com slash Necronomapod. Yeah. yeah, it was a, uh, you know, it was a pretty prestigious uh, endorsement that we got, a friend of the show, actually. So he's been on a yeah. few times, and we got an endorsement out of him. So thank you very much to him. Go check it out on YouTube. I'm working on getting uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. to uh, endorse the show. I mean, if he can... Stop watching his wife well, get, I think get plowed for a few minutes and record. Uh, yeah. He might be on a future episode of Cucks Across America, he right? He might be. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll get Jerry Falwell on there, given his in- ringing endorsement yeah. for, uh, you know, uh, our show and me plowing his wife. Yeah. Hashtag so. fuckface. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, check us out on social media. We're there, and uh, we're at patreoncom slash Pod Also, thank you guys very much. All right, you guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. <laughs>